I think good writers are doing this intuitively all the time. I think the wonderful thing would be if you could get a group of a group of writers who were able to sponsor one another rather than compete with one another. Although I think healthy competition is fine. And you have the like a clean language as a tool. Welcome to Infinite Conversations. My name is Marco Vimorelli, your host, and my guest in this episode is the author and group facilitator John Davis. We're talking about a practice he's been working with in small groups called clean language, which we discuss in terms of John's personal history as a gay man, an activist, as well as its applicability in the world of writing and the arts, especially for groups of collaborative-minded artists. In our e-zine, Metapsychosis, we recently published John's semi-autobiographical tale involving paranormal experiences, liminal zone sex, and spiritual communion, titled In the Crack. And there's a new piece coming soon called Songs of Sodom, which you'll find at metapsychosis.com. Clean Language, developed by David Grove and taught to John by James Lawley and Penny Tompkins, offers a way for individuals to relate to each other's metaphorical landscapes with greater clarity, not only for the purpose of healing, but also for creativity. Indeed, the two outcomes are closely related. Though you won't learn exactly how to do clean language from our talk, I think you'll get a good overview and taste for it. We even start a session spontaneously in the middle of the dialogue, exploring one of my own dark metaphors. If you'd like to learn more, you can get in touch with John through infiniteconversations.com, our forum, where you can also join the conversation. That's all for an intro. I hope you enjoyed the talk. I sketched out a few topics that I think we could discuss. Okay. Um, in particular, uh, relating to the story that we published in the crack. And I thought we could start there, uh, but then bring it to other areas of, of interest. One I thought that would be interesting to discuss would be your work with clean language, uh-huh. uh, which you, you introduced me to when we met up in, um, in the village, what, two months ago. Uh, and I thought we could talk a little bit about that and you could share, you know, what, what it is and how sure. it works and how you use it. I was just thinking about another way of using it um, for a writing session. Hmm. It would be useful if mm-hmm. I were writing. Mm-hmm. This writing session would be like what? Or if I were working with another person, I would really like to ask, especially among writers like ourselves, when you are writing at your best. That's like what? That's just a clean question that would, I think, get people into analogy, metaphor, all that stuff that makes writing, good writing, really good. So that's a, something I just want to put out there. Because um, um, there are many different audiences that have used clean language. It's usually for coaching and educators and therapists and some business people. I'm really interested in finding... Um, writers and creative people, you know, doing what we're doing in, in the journal and seeing how we could use clean language as a tool mm-hmm. to move forward our agendas. But the, to, to move forward our agendas, we have to sort of know what each other's agendas are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I see so uh, compelling about the conversations that I've been seeing recently, mm-hmm. sort of as, as you guys get together and talk about what it is, you know, you're working on. Mm-hmm. And 
everyone has a really interesting take on things. And I think it's just a clean language is just a way of uh, giving it a size and a shape and something that other people can, what is implied can be made explicit. And then other people can say, oh yeah, that's her metaphor or that's his metaphor. It's not my metaphor, but I, I can deal with that. Mm-hmm. So I take on clean language. And, mm-hmm. I thought it would be just an interesting um, idea to introduce or in practice to introduce into the kinds of conversations that we've been trying to have in, right. in, anyway, uh, which we are, you know, we're doing more or less spontaneously and more or less without that much forethought as to exact structure and topics that we're even, you know, we're going to cover. We may have a general theme when we have, have a, do a conversation like the one we did last week on chaos, crisis, and creativity, but we didn't actually have a, a real discursive in- intention. Uh, I think other than just to open up a space where people could show up as maybe their, their deeper selves, you know, their truer selves, I mean, however we want to really frame that, but something not normal, not the usual you know, <laughs> go kind of back and forth of small talk and, you know, just kind of avoiding like the fact of our presence with each other and the fact of um, the, the, the moment that is arising like simultaneously for, for us all, not just in the space, but kind of in the bigger picture as well. Uh, so I don't think I really understand clean language that well. I think it's probably really simple on, on one level. Well, my experience with clean language started, I worked with, um, I read a book on symbolic modeling. And that was by two mentors of mine, uh, James Lawley and Penny Tompkins. And they were in the UK. And I, I, when they came to the States, I think it was at the Omega Institute, I went up there and did a, a retreat with them. And they introduced clean language and symbolic modeling. And it came out of the work of David Grove, who at that time was still alive. He passed away about five years ago. Um, so I went to Omega, I studied with them, I studied with uh, David, um, he was a therapist, he, was a, he had an NLP background, and he had been working with uh, a lot of trauma, uh, Vietnam vets and people who had been victims of rape, those kind of violent experiences prevented people from articulating what exactly was going on, what had happened to them. But if they were able to find a a metaphor for their experience. They were then able to hold that experience, share it, and let go of it and release it so that the conversation, the typical therapeutic conversation, wasn't just re-traumatizing the client, which, uh, you know, really helps with post-traumatic stress disorders and things like that, because having had post-traumatic stress, it's been very important for me to, um, I went through traditional kind of therapeutic uh, adventures and they were all disastrous because it basically was just you know get into your feelings about what that was like Mm -hmm. and it wasn't very helpful but I found if I could move into a a metaphorical landscape I was able to revisit uh, difficult memories and then not just release them but become more creative with them so I believe there's a relationship between trauma and writing for me personally I think I mentioned on our, our hangout that I um, writing was um, a kind of exorcism for me. Mm-hmm. So all of those uh, other personalities that you um, come into your field and you're partially aware of them, 
um, and they take you by surprise, those, those tricksters in the inner and the outer, outer worlds. I believe that um, writing is a way, if you can listen and tune in and ask clean questions, it's a great facilitator, um, not just with uh, you know, your own imagery, but when you're working with another person. So it releases you from the, the, the binds of projection and counter projection, a transference and counter transference, which are the traditional psychoanalytic babble that I think most of us are so sick of, especially if you've studied a lot. It just doesn't go anywhere. I think it's one of those vicious circles that people get into. But I found um, working with Penny and James and working with the community um, developers of clean language and what they're doing is called symbolic modeling. But there's also uh, Caitlin Walker, who works with um, troubled youth. Uh, she was using clean language. She'd say with David Grove. And she does something called systemic modeling, which is a different application for the clean language questions. So she's taken working with troubled youth, um, the same kind of clean questions she would ask you know, troubled youths, she took that into professional settings with CEOs mm -hmm. and she would ask them the same clean questions, very different. These are well-resourced people. Mm -hmm. You would ask the same kind of questions. And I find that uh, very liberating, especially my relationship with a facilitator. If they have clean language at their, one of their tools, I can then um, be released from the dilemma, the paradox of normal conversation where I'm trying to figure out, well, what in the world does this other person understand? What, what's their background like? How can I put into uh, a communication something that's going to make sense to them? Um, so I'm constantly, you know, in our conversations, we have a sort of a, someone said it's a, a conversation is an argument with a missing premise. <laughs> so we both have our conclusions. We just are looking for that missing premise. But the nice thing about clean language is it makes that missing premise much more explicit and available mm -hmm. so that you you don't end up just passing uh, talking past one mm -hmm. so uh you began working with clean language to work on yourself or to work with trauma that arose in your own life i well and with the trauma of others i mean i had worked at a the gaming's health crisis mm -hmm. in new york um this is in the 90s and I'd also been, I, I taught self-help support groups and I facilitated all kinds of meetings. Mm. And I was an advocate on behalf of people with AIDS. Mm. So I was working with a extremely marginalized and persecuted group, certainly in the 80s and the 90s. So it was a collective trauma to be stigmatized. We, were, we had already experienced the stigmatization. I mean, I, I come from the 50s. I was born in the 50s and Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> you know, I was my formative years were in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is where actually the uh, the civil rights movement really started mm. when I was very young. But that's the kind of environment I was in. It was very, um, uh, shall we say, it was very hostile towards difference, and it was really very racist, uh, very Ku Klux Klanish, violent. And my, of course, I didn't know all that. Then, but I was picking up like children do, like a sponge. I was picking up the psychic energies of the adults around me and the teachers and the, the people who were taking care of me and their schisms and their confusions, they, they passed on. So as a gay person coming from that environment, as I got into my teens, I found a good peer group. I also set the intention very early 
when I was about five years old that I had to get out of the South and I had to get to New York um, because I was watching the Johnny Carson show. Do you remember Johnny Carson? I do, actually. Yeah. And Ed, Ed, his sidekick, Ed, Ed McMahon. Yeah. Yeah, it was a late night show. And it used to be, before it moved to L.A., it was in Manhattan. So you saw the, the Manhattan background as the, as the people were chatting. Mm. I remember there was the New Year's Eve where they uh, watched the ball drop in Times Square. And I was staying up late that night. It was like New Year's Eve. And I remember I was in my pajamas. And I was maybe about five years old. And I saw that watching the ball drop and everyone partying. And I said, I got to get to New York. <laughs> so I made that decision. What I was going to do there, I didn't know and didn't care. I just had to get to New York. And so in my, my 20s, I was able to act upon that desire. And I did come to New York in the mid-70s, you know, with punk, queer punk was just kicking off. And it was a very, in the East Village, it was a very exciting time to be alive, let me tell you. But then the AIDS epidemic hit in the early 80s. And then all of a sudden, many, many of my friends were, were just dropping dead. I mean, perfectly, you know, 20-year-olds, perfectly healthy. They got sick, and three months later, they were dead. This is unheard of, this kind of, except like in a war zone. So that was my aid, and that was in the 80s, in the early 90s. Then we, we, we shaped all these organizations. Um, you know, it was a very grassroots kind of movement. We, um, we weren't endorsed by the Republicans or the Democrats. There was no uh, party out there. Um, that was assisting us in any way. Uh, I think that we were exploited a great deal and we were promised a great deal and they didn't come through. But we, there was a lot of advocacy and a lot of political activity. Marching with Susan Sarandon, you know, I did that. So she was a very much, you saw her coming into her, uh, I think her, her maturity, uh, because I think in the AIDS epidemic, it struck a, a nerve with her. That's mm-hmm. a lot of sensitive people, a lot of performers. So I'm just giving a background of where I was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, as I started to my, my community work and um, um, having to create um, a, some sort of self-organizing system that could support people during this crisis. Mm-hmm. And there were lots of unknowns. There was a lot of medical model stuff that really made no sense to me. And I, I believe there was a, a lot of political bullshit. And um, I was also getting all these visions, these visionary episodes. Mm. And as I worked with people, I was, uh, you know, I was trained to hypnosis and NLP. Um, that came out of my work doing body work. I would work with um, Reiki and energetic, uh, subtle work with people. And mm. I, they would often go into altered states of consciousness, go into deep trance states. They would themselves report visionary experiences. And so I felt the need to, to deal with the language games that people had. Mm. Um, because they went very deep into their, what now what I would call a symbolic landscape. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know what the hell to do with that information. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to botch it up. So I felt, well, I have to go out there and train myself. And so I studied hypnosis and I studied uh, NLP. Um, and then eventually I came across the work of Pinion James and David Grove and um, people who are working with metaphor. Mm-hmm. And this, this fits hand in glove with um, work as a writer because, you know, as a writer, you're uh, whatever kind of writer you are, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you're having to enter into other kinds of worlds. And uh, finding clean language to investigate those other worlds really saved my ass <laughs> because I would have been in deep shit if I had not been able to articulate, especially to myself, what was going on. And I did find a few mentors, very few mentors, whom I felt I could trust enough 
to uh, explore in a shared sort of space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Penny and James were one of those mentors. Mm-hmm. They were brilliant, and they had they were therapists, but they also had symbolic modeling and clean language to support um, my development. Mm-hmm. And that's ongoing. I guess I've been doing clean language about 10 years and I wrote a novel and I, I, I want to write another novel. And um, you guys published uh, one of my stories, which came out of that novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm looking for other kinds of uh, projects. And, and I was touched by something that you shared with me when we were in the, that cafe in the village uh, about you know, you can't do it alone as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, need, you need a collaborative space where you're working with other people. And this seems to be so intuitively right. I mean, if you're a performer, you're a writer, you're an artist, you need people, uh, not just sparring partners, you know, just mm-hmm. to, uh, but you need someone who will sponsor um, your best efforts. Mm-hmm. And that's not the same thing as a coach or even a teacher or mentor. I think sponsoring others um, being able to tune into their own way of articulating um, their unique um, models of the world is a is a is a high level skill. So sponsoring others is uh, it takes a lot of skill and a lot of curiosity mm-hmm. about another person. Mm-hmm. So that's um, where I found uh, symbolic modeling, clean language. When I say symbolic modeling and systemic modeling, these are all uh, applications of clean language, which is mm-hmm. the work that David Grove um, offered to his students and said, here, this is yours. It's totally free. Go out and do whatever you want. With it. So um, he didn't trademark it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I, and uh, whatever applications you find for it that's useful, make it more available. Mm-hmm. So what I'm interested in, since I'm not that interested in therapy or the therapy world or the coaching world, not that there aren't some very good coaches and therapists out there. I'm much more interested in these um, symbolic um, landscapes, these metaphorical landscapes, these other worlds, really. And they're very chancy. They're very visionary episodes are actually the norm when you start asking clean questions. Mm-hmm. I think the conversational um, dynamic that we all know so well as we're looking for that, um, the missing premise, you know, they tend to be very on the superficial end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we pre- pretty much rely on the models that we already know pretty well, and we're looking for ways of uh, categorizing and putting into our little slot this or that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's uh, a, re- a really a different kind of, I would say using symbolic modeling and clean language, it's, a, it's not really a conversation. It's much more like a ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more about giving a person a time to just breathe and relax and not have to figure out what they think the other person knows so they can then formulate a useful communication. It's really about you're in the presence of another person who's tuning into you while you um, explore your own uh, internal process in a very deep way. Mm. And that's something that I think is unique to clean language, but it does have family resemblances to other ways of working with with, uh, internal images and that I think good writers are doing this intuitively all the time. I think the wonderful thing would be if you could get a group of a group of writers who were able to sponsor one another rather than compete with one another, although I think healthy competition is fine. And you had the like a clean language as a tool, you might be able to 
um, out of all the perturbations and disturbances that people are confronted by, the, the distortions and the deletions and the generalizations, we could then start to just, you know, open up, you know, to, you know, that, um, that other voice, which I found everyone has a visionary. It's just, it's not that, it's not that, I don't think it's that rare visionary experiences. I just think it's extremely rare that people come from that visionary space in a social space. Mm. Um, so I hope that's well, it. Well, well um, we're both writers. Yes. Uh, yes, indeed. So and you, you're a sponsor, and you've sponsored me, and I'm very grateful for that. Your sponsorship skills are very, I would say, very high. I, I I I appreciate you saying that. Um, although I I don't actually feel that way. <laughs> I often feel that uh, I'm I'm lacking in in the the ability to really um, hold a space for you know for another person or to really not just be curious because I am curious, but to to know where even to go sometimes with that curiosity and like to, to follow the you know the the, the trails or the sense. Uh, in, in another person's mind, uh, you know, I, I, we're like forests. We're like dark forests, I think, uh, to each other. And How dark? How dark? <laughs> oh, very dark. <laughs> and, and then what happens? <laughs> well, and then we and then we go wandering and we get lost. <laughs> and and uh, uh, we, I think, um, navigate, you know, each other's landscapes uh, in a and way. That, and the and dark and when lost and when get lost what happens right before you well, get lost? I, I think that there's uh i see that we're doing this now um in a very conversational way yeah uh well i, I think there's a, a bodily feeling right there's a sense of uh, tension a contraction uh and i don't know if that's you know that may be correlative or causative or maybe it doesn't make a difference. Um, but uh, there is a, I say it's self-concern. There's a feeling of, you know, should I be here? <laughs> um, uh, uh, will I find my way back, you know, to safety? Um, you know, am I naked? Like, can, can, you know, there's all, all kinds of um, very, uh, you know, elusive feelings uh, that are kind of swirl. Uh, and swirl. And am I naked? And can I get myself back? And the tension, when that tension, that contraction, whereabouts is that tension, that contraction? Uh, I would say it's down the front of the body. And the, yeah. whereabouts in the front of the body? Oh, the heart area, down to the gut, to the groin. The heart area, the gut, and the groin. And when in the heart area, in the gut, in the groin, what would you like to have happen? I can tell you, I think, what I feel can happen uh, and what has happened, does happen uh, sometimes when um, that resistance or that nervousness or uh, that contraction uh, releases, relaxes a little bit. And, and that's that there's a much more expansive present um experience uh and uh there ceases to be i think 
as much of a sense of separation between the self that's lost in the forest of someone else's mind or soul uh, and the forest itself or that, that, that other soul itself. There's more of an intermingling, I think, uh, of experiences and of voices uh, of, and of feeling. Uh, so to your, to speaking about clean language and your experience learning it, I asked you if it was for personal reasons uh, and, and you described the, uh, you know, the, the, the AIDS crisis of the eighties and nineties and you know, the other traumas that you were working with, you were, um, you know, working with people and you had your own path through that time. Um, but it's, it's, it, I got, I got the impression that it was part almost, almost just a collective response through your individuality to, to, to try to heal some of those traumas and to try to like enter into your experiences. Right. Right. And it comes through in the story as well. I mean, it sets such a good, such a context for the story because your story in the crack begins with this visionary experience, this state of being in extremis and seeing gods and being palpated by strange hands and uh, being actually being uh, called to the night. The name of the night is, is, is uttered, is given to you and is given by, by these other beings that you're in, in communion with and then your story becomes a story of of uh what happens in the night and entering into the night and there are a number of interesting things about uh, about it and i think that your your personal history like illuminates uh some some of those for example you're growing up in the south and you're making an escape to the north i mean is <laughs> echoes you know the underground railroad or the you know the 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 promise that the urban North represented to slaves uh, who, um, you know, had to make a similar escape that, that you did, you know, of course the contexts are completely different, but there's some, there's some echo there and there's some, there's some parallel there. And, and, and part of what your story is about, I think is about um, you uh, like on these multiple planes, the visionary plane and then the physical plane, uh, kind of uh, coming, I, don't know, I guess, entering into a union or, or, or not entering into a union. And that maybe, maybe you can help me understand that a little bit better uh, because there's a loneliness that, you know, that laces the whole, the, the whole piece. I mean, that there's a suffering and a loneliness there and there's a yearning for union. There's a yearning for marriage, for, for, the, for the love relationship between two people that is um, uh, more complete perhaps uh, than the more, you know, the casual encounters that, that, that you describe as well. Um, but they also, but they're not completely separate. They're, they're in this sort of polarity and they're in this relationship with, with, with each other and within you. So I, I guess, you know, reading your story is, was kind of like walking in this dark, forest right it's like entering into the night of of your of your own soul your own experience your own states uh and uh and now you know we've just entered into this process spontaneously between ourselves of 
inquiring into each other and um, practicing uh, clean language. And, and I, I feel I don't know what I'm doing exactly. I'm, I'm just sort of going with what wants to speak through me uh, and hopefully responding to you and resonating with you. But I, I don't know sometimes, like sometimes it's a, uh, you know, if you're walking in a dark forest, or feels that way, you bump into a tree or you trip over a, a fallen log or something like that. And so that, I feel like that happens to me often, oftentimes. Uh, and it's perhaps not just an occupational hazard, uh, but perhaps it's also something that can be, that one can learn to, to avoid uh, and, um, and thereby you know, make it deeper into that forest and find more of a, a communion with, with the, uh, the, the, the landscape you know, of, of ourselves. Yeah. Um, well, you're such a good reader. You're such a sensitive reader. And I'm so grateful that you read my story and edited it so skillfully because, um, you know, I have no idea really what any of it means. Um, so I'm very curious when people have a, a response to it. It's like, oh, cool. <laughs> they know something that I don't know. This is great. Um, because ultimately, you know, you can craft your metaphors and you can shape your communication. But the person that you're communicating with or shaping your metaphors for have their own metaphors. Some of them are derived from a culture that we both share. But a lot of it is going to be unique and, and weird and uncanny and unique to them. So I, I believe as readers and writers, we're always, I've never really found a very good, it's very fuzzy. Um, I'm not very good with boundaries except when someone steps on my toe, obviously needs to be corrected. And, you know, I think, you know, so definitely I never personalized, I, I had personalized my traumas. Uh, it's easy to do that. But I think when you, we look around and we open our hearts, we start to see other people who are similarly suffering. We can then create uh, bonds that are not necessarily um, going to trap us in our suffering, but hopefully move to some sort of liberation. I'm, a, I'm a definitely a utopian. Uh, I love Oscar Wilde saying, uh, a map without utopia on it is not worth looking at. <laughs> so when we're in this current um, political meltdown with Republicans and the Democrats and people who are going with Jill Stein, as I am, are told we're utopian, I say, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, look what you realists have done, you know, um, trying to be more real than the other guy. Um, it's just created this neoliberal, neo-fascist uh, duck rabbit image for me. I don't see the big difference between the two, except when you, if you sort of do a gestalt switch. They're basically coming out, they have a strong family resemblance and they're sort of pointing to each other. So I believe there's ways that we can um, move towards liberation or at least better than what we've got. And I think that's paid off in my experience as a gay man, seeing how um, there were no real clear boundaries. We didn't even know when the AIDS epidemic hit, we didn't know what AIDS was. They called it GRID. They had different labels for it. And it's sort of an umbrella term for lots of different symptomologies. So that's, so that is another kind of creation um, that was, I believe, created by a medical establishment of pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies did, that did not necessarily care about the people that they were giving all these drugs and medical interventions to. So that's, uh, that's the big business part of it. Um, but I saw within that, I saw there were individuals who were looking for something else, something more imaginative, certainly something alternate. And that's where, you know, 
hypnosis and trance and touch and and um, exploring these kinds of um, unmapped territories. I mean, I, I do believe our maps are important. I think I learned this from Wilbur. I think you're, you, you, you have a background in Wilbur too. I love what he said about the, the map is a performance by the territory. Mm. So otherwise we get stuck in, you know, going to the restaurant, we read the menu and we eat the menu, you know, <laughs> rather than realize it's pointing to something that isn't the map. This is a real, this is a tendency we all have, you know, to you know, think our models of the world are our reality. So um, for me, it's been a big struggle listening to other people's to figure out that I have a map, that, that my map is in motion, and that other people's maps are in motion as well, so that we don't get frozen in these grids. You know, I think that um, it's ongoing for me. Mm. I have not arrived at any big conclusion. I do want to write about the ambiguity of that. Uh, and because if you're in a culture and your culture says, this is cool, this is not cool. Uh, as a gay person, I've realized right away, I got those, those glitches, you know, those contractions. Um, and it was all about who I was. My, at the identity level, I was going to be attacked. So I had to find a way of maintaining a relationship to my to the environment and the, the social world that I was in while holding on to my integrity. Mm. Um, and, you know, people in those days had to pay a price. I paid a very high price for um, maintaining my integrity. Mm. And I had to escape. I, I do consider myself part of that Southern diaspora where I had to, I was a refugee when I came to New York. But there's an ongoing relationship to that. I see as I get older, I look back and I sort of presented my, my as a sort of period piece um, in the crack. It was a look at, you know, in the 90s in Manhattan. Um, and what was going on then is not going on now, or it may be, maybe going on now, but I think it's more, more underground than it was back then. I think that, um, you know, the Giuliani period, the Bloomberg period, they really, uh, as we've, gotten as we've gotten so much more acceptance and more uh, we've been more also assimilated so i think the 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 that, that utopian um search for li that desire for liberation got shifted into you know american express and absolute vodka you know it just got i remember going to a gay pride march back in the 90s and i remember seeing that the absolute vodka float I saw the American Express float and I asked my companion, what the fuck are they doing in our parade? And then I realized, oh, we've been, we're being marketed. We've been commodified. And certainly the people who at Stonewall, mostly drag queens, these were not people who were sanctioned by society and they were not uh, given any bonuses. They took high risks. And that's why I found myself in a very sort of disenchanted space with my own community, because I saw um, how so many people in New York are, you know, driven by those kinds of market forces. Mm. That neoliberal vision was really getting kicking in very strong in the '90s, and now it's very well laid. You know, after Reagan and Thatcher and Bloomberg and Giuliani, it's pretty much I I believe stifled um, dissent, and um, we're seeing I think the the sort of uh, failure to um, pay close attention. So I'm trying to rectify that as much as I can. 
Um, and also finding, you know, others out there who can sponsor this kind of, um, you know, possibilities mm-hmm. could be actualized. And when I tell people, oh, you got to get real, you know, this neoliberal kind of BS, um, I say, look, if I had gotten real back in the South in the 50s and the 60s about being gay, <laughs> forget it. I wasn't real. I fought. I fought and I, when it was safe, I let people know. And when it wasn't safe, I protected my integrity and did the best I could to get out of those spaces, even though often they were relatives and people who told me that they loved me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to make those kind of decisions at a very young age. So as I get older, I start to see you know, how a lot of those so-called traumas are also gifts. And that's why I believe writers um, should not we want to go into those dark forests. We want to go into those contractions, not for any kind of masochistic, uh, you know, increase in misery, but how do we liberate ourselves and one another if we don't even explore that at all? Mm-hmm. Uh, and just briefly, just to bring in the storyteller, uh, the, the, the healing effects of a, of a storyteller. Um, I did not discover all this about my experience in the South from my own experience directly. Um, but through, uh, I think a, I think it was in my early 40s, I read James Baldwin. I'd read some of his stuff um, when I was much younger, and it, it moved me very much. But like Giovanni's Room, which is a beautiful love story between um, two white guys, actually. There are no black people in that novel. So when I read it, I was just, oh, this is great. And I was shocked to find out that James Baldwin was black. Mm-hmm. His career would be over if he wrote this novel. His career, he became it became an international bestseller. You know? <laughs> so don't listen to the realists, you know. Um, but when I was, I read one of his novels, and it was um, his characters. Um, they were uh, black characters. They were in a. They were taking a trip down south to be part of a, a the civil rights movement to be part of a, a a march, and they were moving towards Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And one character has to get out and take a pee. And it was in a dark forest on a dark road. And these uh, three black men, I think four black men are in this car trying to get to this uh, meeting place at this church where this this Mm -hmm. march is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And they're terrified because, you know, they're open prey. Um, And um, you start to, and then what moved me the most was when this, uh, the event takes place in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And James Baldwin, talking through the persona of his character, describes um, Tuscaloosa as being where more black people were hanged in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, than the rest of the South put together. We're talking about the 50s. And that's when I, I was about three years old at that time, living in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, James Baldwin is giving voice to a history that also James Baldwin is gay. He's gay and he's black. He was giving uh, a voice to a history that I did not know that I shared with him. Mm. As a three-year-old, you're, like I said, you're the sponge. You're soaking up all these psychic energies. And um, now, as an adult, I could look back on it and say, oh, okay, now I have a choice about, I didn't have a choice about the models that I had to work with back then, but I do have a choice about the models that I work with now as an adult. 
And James Baldwin is a very good role model for me to have. <laughs> and he's gone to his reward, uh, but I'm still here. And he, I believe, uh, planted some seeds. And I actually think those seeds have been harvested in many ways. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's amazing to me. If it weren't for good writers, if it weren't for writers who took risks and had a vision and put it out there and found a way of articulating it and communicating it, then I would not, I would not be functioning, functioning at all. I was able to go to the library. I was able to find the right books for me. I was able to enter into those other worlds. And I I would say, there's got to be something better than this. There is something better than this. So that, I believe, is so important when we write that we think about that and don't get caught up in the glamour of depression or romanticism or all that. But know that there's some wounded person out there who's in dire straits who may be reading your book. And you don't want them to be thrown into a postmodern depression mm-hmm. or glamorizing some suffering but you want to like okay we're going to touch that we're going to touch all of it mm-hmm. we don't need to get stuck in it mm-hmm. so i think we do need to touch it and our minds we have minds that can touch uh non-kinesthetic mm-hmm. i think it's uh you know what you could call a sixth sense or psychic or whatever but we know when we walk in a room and if someone's had a fight we pick up on it right away it's an mm-hmm. atmosphere and i think writers are very Good writers are very sensitive to these uh, usually nonverbal kinds of uh, communications that are happening. So they're, they're, if they're really gifted, they find words, uh, for this nonverbal, um, non-kinesthetic touch that the mind can do. The word freedom is, is coming to mind. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm remembering that you described your writing or the, like the reason one, one of the, one of the reasons or one of the functions of your writing as a form of exorcism. Yeah. Uh, and now relating your experiences growing up in the South and, and not, not only the experiences that you witnessed, but just the experiences that happened around you or prior to you or in the space that you absorbed psychically, like, like a sponge, you say, uh, it, it, it's, it seems like, your writing could be a form of exercising not just your personal traumas, but like these traumas that you just picked up, you know, from the collective, from from our from our shared history that that happened there. Um, and uh, you know, it's it. I think it shows in your story. Like your story, one way to read it perhaps is a form as a form of exorcism. Uh, and it's it's interesting that I mean the the fact that. You, 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 as a writer, it means something to you or it does something for you, right, to, to write a story like this. Uh, I, you know, it, 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 and, and it comes out in the way it does because when, when it achieves a final form, uh, it somehow, like, clicks into place and kind of accomplishes, you know, that release, that, 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 that freedom, that, 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 Freedom, yeah, that transition into freedom, that release into uh, into freedom. Uh, but then the fact that it, it can have a reader, and that the reader can enter into that dark forest, and in a sense, like if that's a map, perhaps of, of that dark forest, if that's sort of leading, it's both a map and and it, it, it's the forest itself. It, it's it's the it's the forest performing its map. That's right. <laughs> um, but that could become a kind of 
exorcism for me. And I, I think perhaps it also it becomes a mutual exorcism because like, the fact that as a reader, I can receive your words, receive that, that uh, like that energetic baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, have a space for it mm-hmm. within myself. Uh, let it kind of enter me uh, as, as I enter it. Uh, that, I mean, that, that has like these multiple, I think, uh, effects. I mean, one, one is the, the liberating, the exorcism, one, and the liberation from these forces or um, traumas, you know, that kind of bind our, our energy, bind our consciousness. Uh, but I think it has this other effect as well, which is that it kind of takes us out of the consensus world. You know, it takes us out of the matrix world, you know, the, that grid world, uh, or that world of particular, in particular, you know, capitalist uh, exploitation, you know, and the management of our attention, the management of our life energy to serve uh, the needs of, of, of making a profit and uh, exploiting the, the, the earth, you know, exploiting each other. Uh, I think that what can happen with literature, with, with reading and writing, uh, and, and, and not just as a literature, not just as a kind of intellectual like enterprise where, you know, it's more of a game of how much you can know and, you know, how many references you can make and what kinds of awards or, you know, what kind of career you could have doing that, but where, where it involves this contact that you're talking about, like this contact with, between, between minds, the contact of minds with each other. Um, like that, that's, that liberates, that can, has the potential at least, I think, to liberate, uh, to liberate us from this, uh, I think, like demonic, uh, you know, dynamic, you know, yeah. that, that we're kind of caught in. I'm very comfortable even with that. New York, even if you're free of the South in New York, you're not free of, of the matrix you're not no. free of this, of this or the matrix. demonic yeah in fact in fact you're in the belly of the beast as it were i mean that, that's uh and there's the electric baby and there's the belly of the beast and there's the <laughs> demonic, and there's that dark forest i remember actually i think uh the electric baby that you were referring to i would uh, if we were doing a clean session with you i would definitely want to know is there anything else about that electric baby (laughs) but i it triggered also uh, a line from my story where kinsey my um leading character is deciding whether to go from the bar to the sex club across the street and is he and he has that yearning you know uh unfulfilled and he he says i want a love that is as fresh and clean as a newborn baby. Hmm. But I know tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up smelling of cigarettes and stale beer. Hmm. So he sort of, I think, articulates his own desire, his wish, and his also his expectation that he's not going to get it. Yet he still desires it. Hmm. He wants that 
love that is as clean and fresh as the newborn baby. He still wants it. Mm. Even though there's nothing realistic at all in his environment. Um, the environment that he's in, of course, has been co-produced by those who are persecuted and those who persecute. I mean, it's an underground um, world that he's sort of living in. And it's a dark world. It's a night. And I think the metaphors of the vampires and, you know, the, the trolls and the tricksters, they're all out there at night. And you have a day persona and you put on your suit and your tie and you go into the office. And then at night, you go out to the bars, the sex clubs. But there's no, like getting married back in those days was definitely not a, an option, a legal option, or really any option at all. So I'm just saying, but it, that yearning, I think, has been activated in so many gay people over so many generations that we now have seen the culture shift. Mm. So that in New York, at least, you, you can get legally married if you want to. Now that I can get legally married, it's cool. I love not having to deal with the stigma. I don't know that I care about getting married to anybody. Mm -hmm. I, not sort of on my agenda right now, but it would have been very helpful in my 20s, mm -hmm. in my teens or my 20s, if I'd had that option. Who knows? It would have been a different social experience for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just trying to say that, you know, our culture shifts through these kind of cultural exchanges, our reading, our writing, our listening to music and our hanging out in, with people who are uh, working with this stuff. And the philosophers, and I think the culture shifts, and when the culture shifts, the politics moves as well. So then, then the, the legalistic mind starts to come in and starts to look at justifications for changing laws that, because the laws are going to change if the people uh, you're, you're expecting to um, obey the laws have changed. So I think we're in those transitions, gigantic transitions going on. And I think that's where we're seeing a regressive tendencies. And these, you know, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I'm just saying, if you don't have a vision, people perish without a vision, as they say in Isaiah. I come from the, I'm very Southern Baptist in a way. I come out of that sort of the evangelical kind of cadences that I hear a lot in my head. And I read um, the Bible when I was very young. And uh, I also read Shakespeare when I was very young. So those rhythms are, are very much a part of what, what happens to me when I write. So I like those long Faulknerian kind of sentences that seem to go nowhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that just seems to me a part of the energy of finding the surprise that's just waiting right around the corner. I mm -hmm. uh, don't know which corner the surprise is going to come from, but it's, it's, if you keep writing long enough, it's going to happen. So I just hope that uh, I hope that I can be, continue to be hopeful um, that electric baby can't, needs to be taken care of. And I think that uh, there's a lot of dynamism and energy that can be released when we open ourselves up to that potential. Or we could just shut down on it and get on the gravy train or whatever, make as much money as we can, fuck as many, many people over as we can, because that's the name of the game and the winner takes all. You know, those kinds of neoliberal cliches, but it's really happening in New York. I mean, it's very hard to, to protect that electric baby. Mm. And it, it can become a very soulless place very quickly. And, you know, I see a lot of what I would call zombies walking around. Um, 
and I find that, you know, I have to be aware that, you know, I don't have very good boundaries. Mm. So people's faces and their affects and their, they transmit something to me that's very visceral. And if I, and writing for me is that way of exercising that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can also see that spark of intelligence and that, that gesture of, of uh, that bravura gesture. Sometimes it comes from a drunk or a drag queen or someone in the gutter, <laughs> but that's to me very compelling about living in the city. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I hope to be sort of a, a witness and uh, a celebrator of those kinds of gestures that I see. Hmm. Which I, you know, I think that's why I don't hang out in the suburbs or go off into a log cabin somewhere in the woods because I don't think my the electric baby is going to be um, necessarily cultivated or protected in those already pretty safe environments. I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the baby, you're feeding the baby, uh, and the, the the baby is almost in a in a way. I mean, it's like an en- engine of exorcism. You know, it's right. this. Uh, so, so even in, in its embryonic state or in its fetal state, you know, as it's, it's developing, it's taking in the energies around it and transmuting those energies and, you know, transmuting them into, in, into what I think, uh, is, you know, a good question. Uh, and well, we need more than one metaphor for sure. I mean, electric baby is great and you need a whole network of other complementary kind of energies and metaphors Mm. Uh, so it's um so i think you can get stuck there's you know every metaphor conceals and reveals Mm. so we do need to release metaphors when they're holding us up or i I, an archetype for me is the same thing as a metaphor Mm -hmm. so but i think this is this kind of thinking which i would call mythic mythic magical Mm -hmm. We, when we studied the Gebser's material, I found that so compelling that the deficient rational, which is dominant now, really ignores and shoots the messenger if it's a magical or mystical or mythical messenger. Mm-hmm. Or it exploits the side of it that it can commodify and then do its own thing on Wall Street. Um, so I just see these um, this sort of opportunities of exploring the mythical and the magical and the rational without falling into the downside of any of those stages is, is I believe what, what Gebser was, his ma- he's offering a map for that possibility mm. of integration, the integral, the perspective, the whatever you want to call it. Mm. So I believe all of us uh, who are working with that material and who are working in the journal sort of have a, a sense of that unrealized possibility maybe glimpses of it maybe it gets more and more um embodied Mm. in our best moments Mm. uh, our best kinds of communication Mm. so uh you know that i think bonnie called it that that latent that latent thing happening Um, i don't remember exactly her language but it hasn't happened yet on a large scale but i i believe that you know when i was raised in the south it was segregated and there were no we didn't, there were no gay people. There were homos. They hung out at the bus stop, you know, and you were licensed to kill them, you know. Um, but now we have gay people, queer people, LGBT, you know, and we're having different kinds of conversations. They were even remotely possible back then. But I'm just saying there's a relationship between keeping yourself open to that possibility, 
even though shutting down is is much more comfortable mm. and certain so- social uh, environments is definitely much easier to shut down on it and we all have to do that you know we all have to figure out well is it safe uh, is it worth taking the risk i'll go ahead and find out we we, we need those safe to fail experiments in parallel I think we need lots of them right now. And I, I believe your journal is, or our journal is an opportunity to perform, say, to fail experiments. Mm. Uh, even in this conversation, this is a, a safe to fail experiment. You know, what's safe and, well, what's success and failure? Who knows? We're figuring it out as we go along. Mm. Um, so those are the kind of things that I'm, that I find very energized by in the journal. So I'm just wanting to be sponsored the journal and I want to sponsor the journal so it becomes um, a safe to fail space Hmm. so that the visionaries that visionary which I believe is within all of us can be that electric baby can be protected because we need that very much right now because we don't really have any good maps for the territory that we find ourselves in Hmm. Um, but if you're a visionary that's cool that's great Um, if you're a sort of business person or CEO type or someone who you know, has their attachment to their three-piece suit and everything, it could be really awful because their best practices aren't working anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, as I said, I think in our last hangout, the danger is in treating a complex system as if it were simple. I think the Republicans and the Democrats are trying to use very simple, clear cause-effect relationships on a, on a system that's way too complex for that. And I think we could slide very easily into chaos. So I believe we need a space like we're talking about creating for um, safe-to-fail experiments happening so we can release these uh, potentials, which, you know, don't declare themselves with trumpets and, um, you know, violins. You know, they're not that, uh, they're sometimes extremely subtle and peripheral. And did I hear that? Did I say that? What, where does that come from? And you have to sort of, you know, that little, uh, you see the tail of the snake going off into the, the underbrush and you have to grab that snake by the tail. You have to pull it out, grab it, and wrestle it, you know? It's that kind of thing. Um, I saw boys do this when I was uh, back in Texas. They would get these water moccasins, you know? <laughs> they'd go down and grab them. They'd walk down the street with these, with these moccasins with their heads open. It's that kind of I'm not recommending that anyone do that. I'm just talking about that kind of fearlessness, that kind of beautiful gesture. Mm. You see these boys with their, their shirts off and their muscles and they're holding these snakes like that. It's a, it's a kind of cheap thrill, you know. It's, um, but it's that kind of fearlessness and that kind of um, possibility of like going with an image like that, like I just did spontaneously, to see what happens next. Because mm. um, I can already feel the story happening. Um, whether it'll be worth communicating or not, I don't know, but I can feel it and sort of uh, coming forward. Mm. And uh, what was back there somewhere, um, I can bring it out and externalize it. I think language allows us to externalize what is otherwise hidden, remote, and untouchable. Mm. So I'm a great believer in the, in the power and beauty of language. And I also deeply respect the non-verbal and the ineffable. Mm. So it's that in between those liminal zones that I find so compelling. Mm. Well, let me ask you one more question. 
to close out our podcast. What for you would be a utopia? How would I view a utopia? What what for you would be a, a, a utopia? Um, well, actually, strangely enough, I'm already there. I'm living in New York City. That five-year-old boy watching Johnny Carson on TV. He wanted to get there. And uh, he did. And um, he didn't know that he was gay then. He had he knew he was extremely different from everybody else. I think I think his mother knew he was gay. She acted, and it wasn't a good thing. Because um, I remember her talking about to her mother about little Johnny. <laughs> That's what they called me. And um, I remember those conversations that I overheard, and they were pointing out a difference that was not a good difference. It was different, and it was a bad difference. So I'm just saying. From the perspective of that boy that I once was, I'm in utopia now. This is as good as it probably is going to get. And here we are using this technology, and I can share this. You know, no one's going to knock down the door and take me to jail. Who knows? Maybe maybe a month now that won't be true. But I'm just saying right now we have this, um, there's a lot of stability in the system. And I think... When we have these giant perturbations, if there's enough stability, we can integrate and develop, or the perturbations can break us down. So I believe we, we, we really can find those places that are stable. And in a sense, to answer your question, I feel like I'm in utopia in a way already. I just want to do it more of it, and I want to do it better. Infinite Conversations is a production of Cosmos Cooperative, a creative co-op for visionary minds. We're a community of writers, artists, thinkers, and conversationalists who are dedicated to cultivating the life of the mind. We host public dialogues, organize reading groups, publish an online journal called Metapsychosis, and produce podcasts like this one. You can sponsor this podcast through your Cosmos membership, which also lets you participate in live events, and start your own conversations in our forum. If you're the kind of person who loves diving deep into the living waters of philosophy, literature, art, media, politics, technology, consciousness, and all that kind of thing, and could use a platform that's all about supporting your creative work and intellectual life, then check out the co-op. Visit cosmos.coop to learn more. We'd love to have you as a member. Of course, You can also subscribe to Infinite Conversations on iTunes and wherever else fine podcasts are served. And be sure to sign up for our email newsletter at infiniteconversations.fm, where you can comment on this episode and find other quality podcasts as well. This is Marco V. Morelli signing off. Thanks for listening.